Good morning, good to see you. As uh, Matthew said, my name's Richard. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to welcome you. Um, if you're part of the church, you'll know that we are in the middle of a three-week stretch of prayer and fasting as a church. All the details, if you are a guest here, are on this flyer, which are on the tables at the back. But um, the summary is that we fundamentally believe that God desires relationship with us. That's what we believe as a church, and that that involves, as any relationship does, conversation with Him, which is what prayer is, and that we can and also should ask Him for stuff, because He's our Father. He longs to bless us, He longs to meet our needs, and there is, I'm sure you'd agree with me, plenty in our disordered world that needs His presence and His power to make right. Here's a helpful quote from a theologian called Karl Barth who offers one view of prayer like this. This has really challenged me this week as I've been praying and preparing for today. He says, To clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. Isn't that fantastic? I love that. When you pray over these next few weeks, consider your prayers as you seek God for what you need and for what the world around you needs part of a rebellion against all that is broken and disordered. I'm a South African man, so I naturally default to, Arr! and so I like the idea of kind of rebellion uh, uh, in, in, uh, kind of, and defiance in how we do the Christian life. This really appeals to me. It might to you as well, but um, I think there is so much in our world that is broken that we should rebelliously, godlily, godlily, rebelliously, <laughs> defiantly, exactly, uh, rise up against, and I think Karl Barth helps, to, uh, helps us to think about that. Today we're going to be looking at the middle portion of the Lord's Prayer, the framework for prayer that's found in Matthew 6 that Jesus taught his followers and us to pray. We recited the, the whole prayer at the start of the service, but today we're looking at the kind of the middle portion. The Lord's Prayer breaks down like this. The first three petitions are about God's glory and the middle three positions are about our needs. And so this is what we're going to be looking at today. Let's look at this together. So it says, Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. The Lord's Prayer appears in a passage of Scripture known as the Sermon on the mount. Jesus is on a mountainside, if you can imagine this, with a huge bunch of his followers, and he delivers this extraordinary and completely radical stretch of teaching. And you, you kind of have to understand the, the electric fizz of what he's saying in the culture that they're in. He's, he's saying things that have never been said before. He's saying things like, when you're persecuted, that's good. That's okay. That's how the kingdom works. When you're poor, as all of you are, that's okay too, because it's the poor that God is close to. And then he, he starts to challenge, and, and this was such a dangerous thing to do. He starts to challenge the, the structures of organized Judaism as it was practiced by the Pharisees, the, the kind of the high-flying teachers of the Jewish law. And we really need to see how he kind of starts to ratchet up what was previously taught as part of that law. He says things like, You've heard it said that if you murder, you'll be liable to judgment. That's what the law says, but I'm taking it up a notch. If you even get angry and insult your brother, you'll be liable to judgment. 
You've heard it said that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Guess what? I'm here to tell you that you need to love your enemies as well. The kingdom of God is characterized by love and peace and dependence on God. So, so live like that. You see this dynamic in the New Testament that as grace ratchets up, as so, so too does judgment. You, you kind of see this happen. Jesus sets a higher bar for us. We need to love our enemies. And then he, he goes for the, the hypocr- hypocritical practices of the Pharisees. This could literally have got him killed. Three times a day, the, the Pharisees, the kind of the, these high-flying teachers of the law, would stand out in public, in the public spaces, and they'd pray aloud for the world to see. And Jesus says, don't do your acts of good works and devotion to God out in public in order to gain the approval of others. That would make you a hypocrite. And a hypocrite, that word, is, a, is essentially a Greek word for a stage actor. Don't be like an actor. Don't do in public what you should be doing in secret. Don't, don't pray out loud for the approval of others. That would be like an actor putting on their performance for an audience. Instead, this is how you should pray. Do not go in the public square, but do it in secret where your father sees you. Now, this is genius because what Jesus is exposing here is the, the deep need that we all have for acceptance. It's a, it's a fundamental human desire. It's, it's how we're built. And he's saying, don't do all this religious stuff in order to gain the adulation of your fellow man, what you're really hungry for, the deepest longing of your heart. When you quieten everything for long enough and clear out all the rubbish, is that we're desperate for the approval of a father, your father, your creator father, who sees you in secret and knows you and wants to be with you in relationship in that secret place. And so let your prayers reflect that kind of heartfelt flow of emotion and devotion to your father and go to him for your needs because that's where you'll find acceptance and peace. And importantly, it's only from him that you can receive what you actually need anyway. And here are three things that you need to sustain you in your daily walk. He says bread, daily bread, forgiveness, and to forgive others. And you're going to need help against evil, which you will face day by day. So this morning we're going to look at these three things and kind of try and unpack that a little bit. So help us as we pray these things in this season and for the rest of our lives. First thing is daily bread. Father, give us this day our daily bread. Bread in the first century was a daily necessary staple item, simply just keep you alive and nourished. Accordingly, bread is meant to represent to us a basic necessity of life, which includes, by implication, all of our daily needs. I just want to emphasize that word needs as opposed to wants. That's what often gets us into all kinds of trouble when we go after the kind of the unrestrained desires of our heart rather than humbly submitting yourself before the God from whom every blessing flows and simply saying, my father, will you please give me what I need to live this life today? And I think if you consider what that actually looks like, it's perfectly acceptable to consider physical, material, 
emotional and relational needs in that too. We're, we're created to exist ultimately in harmony and in peace with God and with ourselves and with others and with the world at large. And so when these things are out of whack in our lives, then to get us back on an even keel, or better yet, to keep us on an even keel, it's okay to pray for provision in those areas under the banner of daily bread. I think about this concept like this, and this is often what I pray. Lord, for what you put on my plate in this life, can you please resource me to be able to do it well? So if you're a parent, daily bread includes resource to enable you to parent well. If you're a spouse, daily bread includes what you need to be a godly, servant-hearted spouse. For all of us, daily bread as a minimum includes asking God to sustain us and empower us and serve him in the way that we can through the ongoing movement of the Spirit within us. It's asking for the things from the Father who loves you to do what the Father has given you to do in this life. It's asking within these kind of life brackets that God has placed around you and then expecting him to meet your daily need. God has given you a uniqueness and he's given you a unique place in the world. So ask him to help you, to sustain you, to be able to do what he's given you to do in this world. Here's, um, here's a couple of examples from my own life. I'm, uh, if you know me, I'm a, I'm a pretty busy guy. I, I like being busy and uh, I enjoy the things I get to do. Well, most of the things I get to do. But in the second half of last term, as we were coming to the end of our building project up at Alder Road, and we were considering all that needed to be done to pay the bills and complete the project and to lead us into two congregations and everything else that was going on, I started to feel a little bit overwhelmed. I'm a parent, I'm a husband, I'm a pastor, I have responsibilities to other churches in the advanced world that we belong to, I'm midway through doing a master's degree, and then my car blew up and all sorts of issues erupted in my wider family. And I looked at my calendar and I was like, how? How am I going to do this? I believe these are all good things that God has put on my plate, but I couldn't quite work out how I was going to fit it all in. And then, if you remember the church, you'll know that uh, in September, between September and December, we had some really significant and stressful financial issues to deal with. And so, in that season, my daily bread requirements changed. I asked, I started asking God to meet these new demands in my life in order to do them well, but to live with a rhythm and a pace that was honoring to him and to my body and to those around me. I began to ask him under this banner of daily bread to supernaturally resource me. That was my prayer. Lord, would you supernaturally resource me and to fix what needed fixing in that time in order for me to live well for him. That was my little act of surrender to God and rebellion against the disorder of my circumstances. And it was so faith-building to me in that season as various people stepped out of the woodwork and said, hey, how can I serve you in this season? What can I take off you? And situations that looked so complex and unresolvable started to resolve in the most remarkable ways. And some of my essay papers as I was doing my master's that were just baffling me started to come together. And I really felt the power and the energy and the presence of God with me. It was genuinely like he was taking me in that season through the gears, third, fourth, fifth. And 
at a time when I, I really should have been hammered and ground down, I felt his energy rising up in me. And I honestly believe that he was using all of those situations as an opportunity to develop in me dependence and trust in him at a fresh level. That's what he's doing. And that's important because the idea of daily bread harks back, if you know your Bible, to the, the wandering of the Israelites in the 40 years in the desert when God provided for them literally daily bread from heaven, manna, on a daily basis for 40 years, specifically telling them not to collect any for the following day. Because even then, what he was doing was developing a daily dependence on him. Trust me for your daily bread. Trust me that I will provide what you need. And as we learn to do this, anxiety about tomorrow won't always dissipate. You can't help how you feel. But it does kind of at an academic level become quite unnecessary. There have been times in my life where I've just had to learn the simple simplicity of, Lord, help me and resource me for today. I'll worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. That's a discipline. It really is. Worry is easy. And then I'll pray the, pray the same prayer and try and exercise exactly the same trust the following day, one foot in front of another, day by day. But for today, Proverbs 30.8 really kind of sums us up beautifully. It says, give me neither poverty nor riches, because both of those things come with trouble, but give me only what I need for today. Give me my daily bread. The second thing that we're encouraged to pray in this section of the Lord's Prayer is the forgiveness for debts. Father, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And the word debt here is uh, used to denote a, a financial debt, but it's actually meant to highlight a much broader spiritual issue. And here, we have to confront the issue of sin and understand what that means and what it does. Here's a quote I found this week. I'm going to read this slowly. This is a guy called Leon Morris. This is quite helpful. He says, To forgive recognizes that sinning puts people in the wrong with God, we know that, and that only he can cancel out the offense and pardon it. The offense here is seen as a debt which recognizes that we owe God our full obedience. That's a starting point. When we do not pay it, we are debtors to God, and only he can remit the debt. The idea of a, a debt incurred by our wrongdoing is kind of interchangeably used in the Bible with words like sin and transgression and, and trespass. When, when I was at school, we, um, we had to sing the Lord's Prayer every day, and we used to say, Lord, forgive us this day our trespasses. They're kind of interchangeable terms. Now, these things, sin, trespass, transgression, whatever you want to call them, it's, it's kind of a central theme in the storyline of the Bible that also gets resolved in that story. Sin, as you'll know, comes into the story in Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden, which creates a problem for mankind and our relationship with God. And this is dealt with by Jesus at the cross. But it doesn't actually get fully resolved from the story until the book of Revelation, right at the end, when Jesus returns and rids the world of sin and its effect forever at the end of human history. And so we've got to kind of see how this ribbon of transgression, sin, kind of goes through human history and deal with it. We've, um, I believe, got 
a slight problem of language here today because sin has come to represent something kind of Victorian almost and, and moralistic. Like, I don't know, if you steal a, uh, an apple from a, an apple cart, you've kind of sinned and you are face the fires of hell. But to trespass is simply to go where you're not supposed to go, it's to walk where you're not supposed to walk. To transgress is to go beyond a boundary that's been set for you. If you go to a football match and walk down the stand and climb over the fence and transgress the boundary, you're going to get taken out like this guy. <laughs> These are words that are meant to keep us in the safety or re of relationship with God and help us to live out his standards because we love him. The word sin, this is fascinating, was at one time in history used by archers to express when they'd missed the bullseye. If you, if you fired your arrow and missed, they said you had sinned. I find that so helpful because the bullseye in our life should represent what we're aiming at, what we're made for, and that is relationship with God. If you live in a way that breaks relationship, then you've kind of missed the bullseye. I find that quite helpful. You've fallen short of the mark. The arrow of your life has failed in that moment to hit the target. Or you have trespassed by walking where you shouldn't walk. Or you have transgressed by busting out of the safety net with God and walking into enemy minefields and put yourself or others in danger. And because we were made by God and owe our lives to him, when we walk outside of the boundaries or miss the mark of keeping relationship with him, then in a sense, a debt of repair gets incurred. So Lord, day by day as we walk where we shouldn't, as we miss the mark, the bullseye, please forgive us this debt. This is what this particular part of the prayer is about. Now, there is a, a very, very important sidebar that I want to add here. There is a difference between the sin that Jesus dealt with at the cross, the massive debt that's been paid on our behalf, without which all of us would be unable to relate to God and we'd be heading to hell in the fast lane, and the kind of daily debts that we incur as we fall short of God's best for us. If you have given your life to Christ, you are gloriously set free. Your debt has been paid and you're gloriously saved. And that is, hear this, an unchangeable fact for the Christian. But we are also called to live out that reality and live in the good of that as well. Here's, um, here's one way of thinking about this. My wife, Vix, and I, uh, we're, we're legally married in, um, in, in spite of what either of us do on a daily basis. Our, our union has been set by the law of the land and by God. That's a settled fact. But on a daily basis, I'm called to live like that means something and to repair what's broken between us when stuff falls apart as a consequence of my or her actions. It's not like I become less married if we have a scuffle. It's just that that scuffle needs resolving in order to enjoy the best of our marriage. And usually, if not always, that involves seeking forgiveness and offering forgiveness. The debt of relational damage needs repairing. It's fairly simple when you think about it in those terms. That's what this is like. If you're a Christian, 
you are once and for all saved and set free. Rest easy. You're still kind of married to God in this analogy. It's not a sort of a, he loves me, he loves me not, yo-yo, in and out situation. He always loves you. And he always expects that you'll mess it up at times. Otherwise, he wouldn't have given you a savior. But when you do mess up relationship with God, when you do mess, miss the mark, when you do walk out of his allotted boundaries, when you do go chasing after the wrong things, when you do trespass in another God's territory, then we need to repair the debt of relational damage that we've occurred. So God, please forgive me and daily help me to live for you alone, to hit the bullseye for how I should live as your son. Now, another important concept here is to not fall into the trap of moralism. This is an important one for us as well, and our hearts will always want to drag us to this place. Moralism is about doing all the right things simply for the sake of doing all the right things. I feel good about myself because I've done all this good stuff. It's exactly what Jesus is warning about in this whole sweep of Scripture. Don't babble on in the public square in your prayer life. That's a kind of moralism. Have a real day-to-day relationship with God. It would be so weird if, like the Pharisees, we try to have a relationship with our, I don't know, spouses or kids by sending them a text three times a day, 9 a.m., noon, and the 5 p.m. text. That's just not the essence of relationship, you well know. Of course, it's good to be a moral person, not to kill or steal or cheat on your taxes. These are good moral standards to obey, but they buy you in terms of your forgiveness and salvation. Absolutely no credit with God. Hitting the bullseye is to daily recognize that you're not God, that you are prone to stray outside of the lines that he's placed around you, and that this is part of the human condition and will be until Jesus returns, and that you need his help to forgive you and to bring you back into the fold. Husbands, I'm sure you'd, uh, you'd know this as well. If you say something stupid to your wife, moralism would cause you to go out and buy flowers. Nothing wrong with that. I, I encourage it. But flowers themselves won't repair the damage. What you need is forgiveness and a heartfelt desire to hit the bullseye next time by not saying that stupid thing that breaks relationship in the first place. That's what it's like with God. So rest easy in this. You, you, you don't need to repair sin by, I don't know, reading extra chapters of your Bible or clasping your hands really tight in prayer and praying for extra long. That's moralism. You should pray and read your Bible because you want to be in a relationship with God, because you want to be close to your father. He's a, he's a loving father, not a domineering timekeeper. He's, he's quick to forgive. He's quick to restore you to relationship. He's quick to embrace you and wipe off the muck and clothe you again in clean clothes. Fathers should be like that anyway, but the eternal father is just like that by nature. So go to him regularly. Seek his forgiveness for the many times you've missed the mark. Ask for his help to live for him and to be restored to joy in him. Do it all the time. Live with a heartfelt direction, a heartfelt attitude of that all the time. The second part of this particular verse tells us to forgive others. Forgive us, Lord, as we've forgiven others. I think it's really important just to log here at the start of what I'm about to say that this is not like a time sequence, like God can only forgive you once you've forgiven others. The, the dynamic at play in this verse is that it should be a constant 
process. Keep your heart soft and supple enough that forgiveness flows both in and out of your heart at all times. Otherwise, you're just guilty of the same hypocrisy that Jesus is decrying a few verses earlier. Grace, forgiveness, mercy, love. These things should flow through the revolving door of our heart and ping straight out to others in the world. Constant basis, Lord in, person out. You demonstrate we love because he first loved us. Now, again, just... Just a slight warning against the moralism again. Don't get caught in the trap of guilt for works of forgiveness that you are still working through. My, my own life story has meant that in my childhood, it took me many years in some cases to fully forgive some people that I needed to, but that did not stop me from knowing God's forgiveness and grace in spite of that. Just keep an open orientation of the heart to working through hurts, and traumas towards you that you need to forgive. This is good for your soul. So pray for help. Forgive us our debts as we forgive the debts in our hearts towards others who we want to see hurt for the damage they've caused us. Lord, help me. Help me to keep a soft heart on that issue. Help me to increasingly know your forgiveness and to joy in your forgiveness as I forgive as well. That's why Jesus said, you've heard it said that you should love your enemy Sorry, you should love your neighbor, but I tell you also to love your enemy. Not to would have meant living with a hard-hearted disposition of holding a debt against those who you consider your enemies. I was talking to a GP friend last week who was um, telling me and actually showed me a, a research paper that uh, unforgiveness is actually a, it's a health condition with real-life health implications. He showed me this research paper showed the, the links between unforgiveness and cancers, and heart diseases, and other maladies that can be connected to unforgiveness. You, we know this. You, you know how it feels to be unforgiving towards someone. It kind of burns, and hurts, and causes you to shrivel up inside in fury and hatred, rather than breathing in the fresh air of God's grace in forgiving you. And Jesus recognizes that this is not easy for us. And so he says, well, pray about it. Ask your father. Please forgive my debt and help me to forgive the debt of others. The third thing that we are encouraged to pray in this prayer is, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In this context, the word temptation, it's a, it's a Greek word, peresmos. It can be understood kind of as a, a test or a trial. Lord, lead us not into testing times and trials, but most importantly, when they do come, deliver us from the evil associated with them. It's really important to note here that God never leads anyone into temptation. It clearly says that in James 1.13. But he does lead us into times of testing. And in that place of testing, there is always the risk of walking outside the boundaries, trespassing where you shouldn't, missing the bullseye, falling prey to all the damaging consequences of that, or to use biblical language, evil, the domain of the evil one. So the question is, first of all, why, why would God lead us into testing in the first place? And the answer is kind of what we've already been through this morning. It's, it's God's primary intention of your life. It's his number one intention for you to become like Jesus, pure, 
perfect, holy, 100% dependent on him. And times of testing and seasons of trial are opportunities to kind of dig deeper into him and to trust him uh, and to, ho- to trust him to hold you fast and to develop your faith muscles in the way that Jesus demonstrates with his whole life. The Bible paints this really beautiful picture of the mature Christian in Psalm 1 like this. It says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his Lord day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. That's health. We know that what makes uh, roots grip down strong into the ground. I'm looking at Steve Cox right now who's actually written a book about this. Steve, you can correct me afterwards if I'm wrong. But we know that what makes roots grip down strong into the ground is actually having to for their survival. Roots don't need to grow deep and strong if they're fed and watered every day from a watering can. That's why you can successfully grow small trees in pots around your house. But mighty oaks need deep roots, and they develop those in the wind and the storms where they have no choice to grip down or get blown over and die. In other words, oh mighty oaks of Gateway Church, when testing comes to you, See it as a grace gift from God who holds you fast and is presenting you in that moment with an opportunity out of his love to help you to be all that you can be in him. His child that won't be blown down and die when the days of trouble really do come. That in those moments you won't run and hide yourself in the caves or stray off the path or do stupid things that cause you to miss the bullseye and shipwreck your life, but to hunker down and to root yourself in him and to trust him, joyfully knowing that he's got you until the storm passes. When I was teaching my kids to cross the road, we gave them instruction after instruction. Don't know how to do that. But the day came when they had to face the danger themselves, the the trial, if you like, of crossing the road themselves. And so Vix and I stood on one side of the road and watched and waited, kind of ready to pounce as they faced the test and the challenge of crossing the road by themselves and seeing if they had learned to trust that what we said was right. That's how you build maturity into kids. And that's how God builds maturity into us. He teaches us how to live. And then he invites us to put it to work as we trust him and hunker down in him. So when you face the day especially when you face times of temptation and uh, test. Use it as an opportunity to defiantly say, God, in this moment, help me to develop my root system in you in a way that will withstand this, but will also withstand all that life throws at me. Shape me, make me like Jesus, who is dependent enough on you and trusting enough in your ability to face down the evil one as to go through the test and the trial of death itself and came out on the other side completely delivered from evil. When you consider your life, in fact, especially when you consider battles that you face or are facing, I can tell you now, I hear people say this all the time, what is God doing? The answer is, he's making you like Jesus. 
He's providing opportunity for growth in him. He's letting you cross into the kind of the dangerous road yourself to grow in confidence that he's, he's right here watching, waiting on the other side. Will you trust him? Will you trust that what he's doing in you will produce good stuff and give you strength to face bigger roads and bigger trials, to trust him more, to metaphorically cross motorways, knowing that he's, he's with you as you do. Just to be clear, I'm not encouraging you to cross motorways. I did it once when I was younger, and it's harrowing, and it's illegal. And breaking the law will not grow you in holiness, nor will getting run over. Although it might bring you closer to God in a different kind of way. <laughs> when the mountain path gets narrower, and the wind picks up, you cling closer to the rock, or you fall to your death. We need to bake into us this prayer and framework of operation. Help me to cling to the rock. But when the season does come, keep me from trial. Help me to overcome and avoid falling to my spiritual death by trusting you and avoiding the precarious edges. Don't let me trespass off the cliff edge. Keep my feet on the bullseye of the path in front of me. Don't let me transgress off the safety of the solid path underfoot. And we need to remember, everything I've said today, the entire arc of history is that our Savior went through the ultimate trial at the cross and came out the other side by overcoming the evil one so that we can, for once and for all, be delivered for evil, from evil. So, Lord, help us to live it out. Lord, help to lead us not into temptation, but when that day comes, deliver us from the evil one. So what do we do with all the stuff as we go into our second week of 21 days of prayer? It's quite simple, really. There's three things. Number one is we pray for our daily bread. Consider your needs. Drag them from your anxious mind and come to the Father. Present them to him. Tell him, I can't do this alone. I need you. Don't hold on to the anxiety of your daily needs like a hot coal. Lay them down before the Father and ask for help for the day. Second thing is just consider the bullseye. I find, I find that so helpful. Living for Christ is the bullseye. Staying on the allotted path, fixing your eyes on him, not trespassing off a cliff edge or transgressing into a minefield. Where do you need to readjust the bow? And in what ways are you likely to miss the target of God's best for your life? In what ways have you already? He knows that you are dust. He knows what you're like. He made you. He knows that you will get it wrong all the time. But like a good father, he's ready to forgive and restore you as you come to repentance again and again. Listen to this kind of polarity I find helpful. Romans 3.23 tells us, for all of us, everyone in this room, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's, that's where we start. And Psalm 103 mercifully tells us, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. This is the hope that we live with. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, there's forgiveness and mercy today. He gave his only son to pay the debt of sin for you. He's saved you from that debt. He's paid the debt. That's why he's called the Savior. And the Savior tells us to pray for forgiveness of sins and to forgive others. Third thing is, Pray against the sort of testing that would cause you to stumble into evil. But pray that when that day comes, that rather than running to the tower of your own making for your security, 
You'll be able to cling to the strong tower of God. That you will know the peace of standing in the storm, knowing that so long as I cling to God, I'm totally safe. And I'll overcome today and every other day because my faith roots are digging in firmly into the solid ground of Christ. I want to encourage you to pray with us this week. Continue praying. But we also want to stand together in prayer. There's an individual element I've talked about today, and there's a corporate element that I've talked about today. We need to pray in secret to our Father. We need to stand together and pray together like a mighty orchard of oak trees. So in a moment, we're going to make time to, um, to pray for one another if that's something that you think you need. But we'd, uh, and we'd love to talk to you if, if this is the first time you're perhaps praying at all, thinking about Christ. I'd love to talk to you about that afterwards. But why don't we stand together and we're going we're gonna to recite that Lord's Prayer again. And we've already done it, but I think it's going to be helpful just to pray through it again as a family. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.